Questions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Good afternoon and hello. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute, live from the new WBAI studios, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 70,000 members nationwide, and NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. My name is Michael Thomas Carter, and I'm a writer and organizer with NYC DSA since 2016, with experience working in electoral campaigns, including Bernie 2016, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez 2018, the Cynthia Nixon gubernatorial campaign, and Julia Salazar 2020. Let's get started. In the words of the legendary union song, Solidarity Forever, we can bring to birth a new world from the ashes of the old. On today's episode of Revolutions Per Minute, we'll be talking to socialists who are doing just that in their own ways. Lee Zishi interviews a comrade from Southwest Louisiana on the devastation caused by extractive capitalism and climate collapse and what socialists are doing to protect their communities. Later in the show, we'll have a live interview with Ansley and Bill from NYC DSA's Brooklyn and Bronx slash Upper Manhattan electoral working groups on their work to create a rigorous democratic endorsement process for NYC DSA's involvement in the 2021 city council race. We also hear from Ben M on a new political education series formed in the wake of the end of the Bernie Sanders presidential campaign. But first, the headlines. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredibly weekly newsletter by NYC DSA electoral working group covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. In local news, Industry City has withdrawn its rezoning application just weeks before the city council was set to vote on it. The project, which would have allowed $1 billion of luxury development in working-class Sunset Park, was opposed by council member Carlos Menchaca and NYC DSA. New Yorkers protesting a grand jury's failure to convict Breonna Taylor's killers were attacked by NYPD officers on camera. The Justice Department designated New York City an anarchist jurisdiction, along with Portland, Oregon, and Seattle. The designation threatens the city's federal funding, which makes up a significant portion of its annual budget. A student at Medgar Evers College is suing the school and council member Lori Cumbo for allegedly conspiring to suspend the student as a result of the student's public criticism of Cumbo. Citing failure to follow procedure and secure impact studies, a judge blocked the city's plan to replace the Manhattan Detention Center with a new jail. The replacement is part of the city's plan to replace Rikers Island with smaller jails in every borough but Staten Island. The city has reported an uptick in COVID-19 cases in several neighborhoods, including Borough Park, Midwood, Flatbush, and Williamsburg in Brooklyn, and Kew Gardens in Far Rockaway in Queens. While the city as a whole has a positive test rate just above 1%, those neighborhoods have rates ranging from 2 to 4%. 
The New York Post published a feature and a scaremongering editorial on NYC DSA's Tasks and Perspectives document. According to Jacobin, it's a sign that the right wing is, quote, terrified that average New Yorkers actually like the socialist pro platform. About one-sixth of formerly incarcerated New Yorkers whose voting rights were restored by Governor Cuomo's 2018 executive order have since seen those rights rescinded again, this time for parole violations. Protesters gathered outside of Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's Park Slope home, demanding he resist efforts by President Donald Trump and U.S. Senate Republicans to appoint a replacement for the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Likely incoming state Senator Jabari Brisport penned an op-ed on New York's mass incarceration problem. And in election news, New York City Council Speaker Corey Johnson, long believed to be a front-runner in the city's 2021 mayoral election, has decided not to run. Johnson cited struggles with depression and denies that the battle over this year's city budget played a role. 1199 SCIU, Make the Road, and Community Voices Heard have rolled out their first wave of city council endorsements, which include Tiffany Caban in CD22 of Queens, Crystal Hudson of CD35 in Brooklyn, Amanda Farias of CD18 in the Bronx, and Jennifer Gutierrez of CD34 in Brooklyn. An official with the City Board of Elections told the City Council that New Yorkers can expect general election results in the same time frame it took to count votes in the state's primary election, would be in, quote, the December 8 to December 15th range. By law, counties in New York State must complete their canvas by November 28. The Electoral College is scheduled to meet on December 14th. The State Board of Elections has released a new absentee ballot design aimed to minimize confusion as per Governor Cuomo's executive order. And finally, Nassau County DSA endorsed Joe Sackman for Assembly District 15 in Hicksville against Republican incumbent Michael Montezano. Montezano last won re-election in 2018 by a margin of 52 to 47. All right, thanks very much to Simone Norman for reading those headlines. Um, now, uh, I'd like to move on in terms of back in April, we did a show called What is to be Done, if you catch the reference, on organizing after the Bernie Sanders campaign. Our comrade Ben Maybe described the organization of a conference called Continuing the P Political Revolution. That organizing has now taken shape and you can participate in it. Let's go to Jack Devine for more. Yo, what's good, New York? This is Jack Devine, and I'm here with Ben Maybe, and we're uh, talking about continuing the political revolution, a a speaker series that came, you know, was brought together back early in the year when the circumstances were a bit different. We thought maybe Bernie Sanders would be the Democratic candidate for president, and that we wouldn't be living through a pandemic. Uh, uh, Great Depression, and a, but more encouragingly, a massive uprising for Black lives. So we're we're kind of living in this new world and this constantly accelerating and um, intensifying contradictions. So Ben, just want to tell us a little bit why you put this uh, speaker series together. Like, who is involved in this? Maybe talk about the speakers that. Uh, we're on this past weekend, what's, uh, what's coming forward in the next couple weeks, and what really is this about in terms of do we want to be having these sort of strategic conversations out in the open rather than just exclusively focused on 
maybe like the basic campaign demands, but thinking maybe bigger about the long-term strategic picture for the socialist left here in the United States. Yeah, thanks, Jack. I, I think you're exactly right. We, I, you know, a bunch of us here in NYC DSA decided months ago, back when Sanders' fortunes uh, to kind of wrest control of the kind of Democratic nomination for the president looked like they were going to be luckier than they ended up being. We thought that under any number of different political circumstances, a Sanders loss, a Sanders win, or even a kind of Sanders kind of thwarted uh, effort at winning the nomination that would have been robbed from him at the DNC. We thought in any circumstance, it was really important for the kind of broader forces of the left and of movement organizations, which had kind of converged around the Sanders campaign to come up with a plan. After all, we thought that one of the best and most important things that kind of came out of the Sanders race was precisely that convergence of different progressive unions and movement groups and diverse working class constituencies, which are so often not working so closely in tandem, do not share a similar kind of political horizon. And for us, we looked at the Sanders campaign and we noted that it was highly unique on the left for being able to bring together the Dream Defenders and the Sunrise Movement, to bring together Miss Major as well as Roseanne DeMauro, to bring together Ethiopian packing house workers and Bangladeshi tenant organizers. And we thought this kind of anticipated a bit of the kinds of working class constituency, but also working like active working class kind of political force uh, that we would need to kind of win socialism. And that kind of our desperate need for a kind of coalition like that, a kind of durable political force working in tandem like that, it has become no less urgent, even as Sanders' own kind of race for the White House is sunset. It's uh, perhaps even more urgent now in the kind of context of the economic crisis that we're in, uh, in the context of right-wing revanchism and political violence, uh, and in the context of a pandemic. So the whole idea is that we would, on the half, like through NYC DSA, begin to kind of convene these different working class and movement organizations to talk about how we keep the political revolution going especially now in this context when we no longer have the Sanders campaign to work as a national vehicle to stitch us together for ourselves. And, uh, you know, while the initial idea was to have an in-person conference, we've been having a really robust speaker series that we've been digitally kind of uh, projecting. And we just had our first two, as you mentioned, this last weekend. Uh, we had a number of representatives from the housing justice movement, the kind of movement to cancel rent, discussing kind of strategy and where to go forward. And we had representatives from the Kansas City Tenants Union, the Bangladeshi Tenants Union, as well as other kind of groups here in New York City. And then we also had a discussion about black politics, Black Lives Matter and the political revolution that kind of ran through the whole gamut of conversations about uh, what's next for Black Lives Matter, where the kind of new organizations which are developing on the ground, um, and how to square both Black liberation and the political revolution at a time when so often the political establishment and operatives of the Democratic Party want to pull those two terms, those two ambitions and aims apart and kind of set them as two even diametrically opposed goals. And they've so far been really rich discussions. And upcoming, we've got you know, more happening on how to fight the right beyond just the ballot box, uh, beyond just defeating Trump in November's election. We have conversations upcoming about labor strategy, about new worker organizing in the context of COVID and how to fight to make our unions more democratic organizations. And we also have conversations about electoral organizing, about uh, the party that we want to build, uh, as well as conversations about um, 
how we're going to be able to win Bernie's program, some of those kind of real engines of solidarity in the form of the Green New Deal or the Red New Deal or Medicare for All, how we're going to fight and win those without, again, that campaign acting as a big national vehicle. So if you want to kind of check out some of the videos that have already kind of occurred, they're all kind of free to watch on YouTube. Or if you want to check out some of these future conversations that will be taking place over the next few Saturdays, both this upcoming Saturday on October 3rd and then again on October 10th, uh, we would really recommend you check out our Eventbrite registration. You can access that really easily at the following link, rb.gy forward slash xaff. AC, that's rb.gy forward slash XAFFAC. And that'll both link you to a number of videos of the conversations we've already had, as well as a place to find out about the future conversations to come. Thanks so much for that, Ben. I think this is a really crucial set of conversations for anyone who is interested in the kind of crises that we're living through the in the, the struggles that are necessary to overcome the kind of depraved conditions that we're all living through in this moment and so we'll make sure to include that link in our show notes and to all our listeners here in revolutions per minute many of these speakers that were both from this past weekend and i think through the rest of this uh, conference that is now online will be familiar to you so i we really really recommend you check them out so thank you so much ben for sharing this information with our listeners Thanks for having me, Jack. Today on RPM, we're joined by Phil Peterson, who is with the Southwest Louisiana DSA chapter. And we're going to be talking about how Hurricane Laura impacted that area and how that chapter has been responding through mutual aid. So welcome, Phil. Welcome to RPM. Hi, thanks for having me. Almost, I guess it was about a month ago, August 27th, Hurricane Laura. It was a Category 4, very, very strong storm with a lot of uh, storm surge slammed into Louisiana. I saw on September 14th that your DSA chapter, you know, put out this tweet that you needed help on the ground and that the situation was really brutal. Can you first kind of talk about what it was like in your area in Lake Charles um, immediately after the storm hit um, and what it's like there now a month later? Immediately after the storm hit, before the storm hit, me and my girlfriend left. If you live in this area, you're used to hurricanes to the extent that you know when something's going to be really bad. And as soon as they bumped it up to a Category 4, anyone who could leave did leave. I was lucky enough to have somewhere to stay outside of town. My sister lives in Lafayette, so I was able to hide out there. A lot of people weren't so lucky. We did drive in the day after to check damage to my mother's house, uh, to my girlfriend's apartment, to my apartment, etc., and immediately after, it was devastated. You know, there, there's no other way to put it. The north side of town, which is where we entered from on Gershner Memorial Drive, had knots of power lines wadded up, buildings torn in half, brick, uh, metal bars thrown through brick, ceilings caved in, wall windows blown out. The roads were deep enough in water that you couldn't drive through. Trees were everywhere. Uh, the university was destroyed. It was difficult. We had to drive from one end of town to the other, and on the far side of the lake, one of the plants had been damaged by the storm, and you could see the chlorine gas rising up out of the chemical plant. There was a shelter-in-place ordered, and we had to re-evacuate after that. 
And what is it like now a month later? And maybe can you talk a little bit too about what was the immediate response from the people who are supposed to be there to help out when there's this kind of emergency? So the first people who showed up were National Guard and like the cops. And there was like very little FEMA aid that I saw immediately. Uh, Part of this I've heard is because the president decided to send a significant amount of FEMA aid to uh, punishing and tormenting immigrants. But the first people to help were, you know, the National Guard to direct people around down power lines and cops to catch quote unquote looters. So the first priority was protecting property. We, uh, one side of town is wealthier than the other. The south side of town is the wider, richer part. And because of that, there was almost immediately uh, first responders there. There was, uh, you know, Wi-Fi setups for people at the casino and stuff like that. But unfortunately, that response was very, like, weighted to one population, the, the wealthier side of the city, while the, uh, the poor side of the city is still receiving power, but only just now. South side, which is about 40% of the city, was back online after about two weeks. The storm devastation was pretty significant. There was nothing in the world that could have got it up faster, I don't think. And the city was opened up then, which was problematic for people who lived in the north side, many of whom didn't have water and didn't have power, but were forced to return to their homes if they wanted to keep their jobs or cancel their leases and lose their homes and just relocate. Uh... The, uh, the homes that we went into, many of them were covered in mold. I can say that my girlfriend's for sure was the ceiling fell in. My apartment complex was hit by a tornado that came off the storm and it tore the ceiling off and I was given an ultimatum to leave. It was, uh, it was difficult. Uh, it really gives you a sense of the disparity between rich and poor to see which side of the city was prioritized over the other and to see how like zoning laws can in their way be subtly racist without being explicitly so. And so when a lot of these um, authorities that were supposed to respond, that are supposed to help the people, you know, are only focusing on the rich, how did your DSA chapter respond um, with mutual aid and who are some of the people you're working with in your area? We are lucky enough to have one fairly large mutual aid organization that operates in this area, the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, MADR. We worked with them organizing spreadsheets to communicate with them where people with needs were and what needs they had and how they needed to be filled. In particular, we've been focusing on the rural areas. That is the areas in Cameron Parish, which is the, uh, the parish right by the Gulf of Parish. It's like a county here. And that's uh, one of the poorer areas, but it was the one that, because it was right by the Gulf, got hit with the storm surge. You see, when people say that the storm wasn't as bad as we thought it would be, what they mean is that the storm surge wasn't as damaging, but the wind was actually more damaging. And a lot of that area was without power, without water, and just completely, quote-unquote, unsurvivable for a long time. About six to eight of our chapter members were displaced by the storm, but another six to eight were active on the ground, clearing trees, distributing things like diapers and, you know, gallons of water and tarps, blue tarps, to put on roofs. 
so that, you know, rain wouldn't continue to destroy drywall in areas. We, of course, would not have, we are a small chapter and we would not have been able to do nearly as much if it hadn't been for the help of our friends in New Orleans, DSA, and the Mutual Aid Disaster Relief. And kind of like thinking about, you know, the history of, I mean, especially in Louisiana, you know, seeing how much the federal government, you know, failed New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, you know, even here in New York, um, when Hurricane Sandy hit out in the Rockaways, it was this group called Occupy Sandy, which came out of, you know, the Occupy movement. Um, you know, I heard stories from people that, you know, uh, Mayor Michael Bloomberg just like came in on a helicopter touched down in the Rockaways for a photo op and then was gone. You know, it was, it was really people helping people. Um, and so how much, you know, were you kind of prepared for having to take care of each other and, you know, not like kind of expecting people not be there for you? So um, Katrina and New Orleans is the, I would say the archetypal example of disaster capitalism. Uh, immediately in the wake of that, they privatized the schools and, uh, you know, like about, oh, I don't know an exact number, so please put like an asterisk by this, but several tens of thousands, maybe even a hundred thousand people never went back to New Orleans after the storm. And while I do fear like what will happen to Lake Charles in like the months coming, I will say that DSA has been preparing for this for a while. Uh, one of the first things that we did when we became a chapter was our Lafayette comrades put together a training on mutual aid. A lot of small groups that aren't affiliated with us, just private charities have been handing out food on the corner. It, it seemed like even people outside of DSA were prepared for nobody to come help us. We have been focusing on mutual aid for a long time. A lot of our chapter associates are, or our comrades, our chapter comrades, are anarchists and work in that kind of space. And as such, um, we were able to pretty quickly mobilize uh, groups to work with. We were able to put together spreadsheets for needs to go out into the community and see what people need. Uh, we organized a uh, tool share in the city. We were able to make sure that people would have like the tools they would need to clear trees and, and uh, you know, get from place to place. Uh, pretty quickly, people were on social media talking about what they need, trying to get information from one another. One of my comrades reached out to me to try to get gas for uh, a generator for their uh, mother. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do it, but somebody else was, and it was resolved within a couple hours. I would say that we had a fair bit of preparedness just by dint of knowing that this would eventually happen. Uh, of course, you can never be fully prepared for a disaster on this scale, though. What are your kind of, you know, if someone's listening to this and wants to help out, like what are your short-term needs and what do you think this area needs long-term? What I would say is that if anybody wants to help out, uh, if you're in the immediate area, get in touch with either uh, Mutual Aid Disaster Relief, MADR, and ask them to set you up with uh, somebody on the ground who it has access to the need sheets and what people's immediate needs are. Uh, another thing I would say is get in contact with our chapter directly. We can direct you to um, activists who can tell you how to help. And of course, finally, you can contribute to our GoFundMe. How can people find that GoFundMe? Do you know? uh, we have a link to it on our Twitter. It's pinned. That's uh, at DSASWLA. And uh, we also have a link on our Facebook page. 
which should also be pinned. Great. And I actually, uh, on your Twitter, you know, the bio talks about trying to get, you know, Southwest Louisiana organized before the ocean swallows us up. And you know, <laughs> I think that's such a, like, beautifully sad <laughs> vision. Um, you know, Louisiana is this oil and gas state, you know, as you're talking about the, with the chemical leak and the um, emissions that were coming. How, you know, even before the storm and maybe, you know, after the storm, how what is it like organizing there? And are you able to organize around issues like climate change um, and for things like a Green New Deal? Um, you know, how difficult is that in a state that's so based in, you know, oil and gas? There's kind of, It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? The reason that people like the oil and gas companies is that they like the good trade jobs that come with them. We are one of the few parts of the country that still has an intact industrial economy. And as such, we have like good jobs for working people. But also, we are right next to the coast. We are the most vulnerable when oil spills happen. That's our fish and our shellfish that get killed. Our agriculture is most at threat from when climate, uh, from as the climate warms. Experts believe that our agricultural output will decrease more significantly than any other state. We will be more prone to flooding. We will be more prone to erosion and loss of land. And so, you know, you're kind of trapped between a rock and a hard place. You want to keep the jobs, but you don't want the complete destruction of the state. What I think the workers here need to understand is that we want a seat at the table. The South wants to have a say in decisions about stuff like a Green New Deal. Uh, I feel like our working class folks would be less apprehensive about endorsing environmental reform if they understood that they were going to have a say in how it's carried out. You know, at the end of the day, while I appreciate the work of our comrades in the North uh, and, you know, folks like the squad, it's important for them to, uh, for everybody to understand that, you know, we, no, nobody wants to be isolated. Like this has to be something like these decisions have to be made by people across the country. Is there anything else you'd like, you know, people in New York city or someone else who's listening to this, maybe somewhere else in the country to know about, you know, the organize that's happening um, in Southwest Louisiana right now in this moment or in the future? Once the storm is over, uh, or, I mean, you know, the storm's over, but, you know, once the city is repaired, we hope to do more outreach to the rest of the country. We hope that, um, you know, we hope to return as strong as we went in and possibly come out even stronger. We will weather this. You know, we weathered Katrina. We will weather this. And also, um, I think that one of the most exciting things about DSA in the South right now is that we, because of the unique challenges that we face, we are forced to develop new organizing techniques and try to figure out ways to engage uh, oil workers and others in the environmental struggle. I believe our comrades in New Orleans have been a lot better at that than we have. And I think that people should keep their eyes on New Orleans because they're doing exciting things. Um, and just as an aside, you don't have to keep this in there, but, uh, I do believe that New York is, is a wonderful place. It's, it's a beautiful place with, with, uh, 
so much culture, probably as much culture as New Orleans. But uh, I've seen I've seen what they they call barbecue there, and I'm offended. I <laughs> I stop doing that. There's there's a lot of things we don't do that well either, you know. Well, I mean, My well, boyfriend's from the Southwest, and he says we can't do tortillas here. You know? I just had to get that out of my system. Don't know if I'll ever be able to again. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. Uh, thanks for making the time when it's so difficult. I know being a displaced person right now, that can't be easy. So uh, and know that your comrades in New York City have your back and uh, we want to help. Um, and yeah, thanks so much for, for being on today. So fighting words from Louisiana regarding New York barbecue. Uh, thank you so much, Phil Peterson and Southwest Louisiana DSA for your work on the ground in Lake Charles, Louisiana, where there was recently a devastating hurricane, Hurricane Laura, that um, was substantially increased by the effects of climate change, as many of our, of our current hurricanes are. Um, he spoke movingly of creating networks of mutual solidarity amid climate destruction. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can also find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we're talking about creation amid destruction. Now, this is also a really good time to remind everyone that if you're not already a WBAI buddy, that you should definitely sign up. Um, the monthly donations that our station receives are the main way that we're able to produce this content, um, bringing together comrades from all around the country, from the north to the south to the east to the west, talking about um, ideas and, uh, and actual on-the-ground moves that you can make to help your community, to help other communities. Um, and so one of the best ways you can make sure that this content continues to be made is to go to WBAI.org and make a donation today. So, Reggie, do we do we have Bill and, yeah, and Ansley? Yes. This Anytime, is guys. I am here. Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear your voice and that you can hear my voice. This is Bill. Yes. Can you hear me? I can hear so you, Bill. Thank you. I think for me, you're coming in a little bit broken, but regardless, happy to be here. Wonderful. So uh, let's go right back to the first question we talked about, which is why do we participate in elections? Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for having us on. Um, and when socialists and DSA in general run candidates in elections, I would say the first goal would be to organize the work. Um, when we think about the program that we want to achieve, Medicare for All, New Deal, Housing for All, um, these things are not going to be possible without this mass working class base that can confront capital and the ruling class. But the matter is that many working class people only think of politics as something that they use at the ballot box. Um, and it is our goal to meet the working 
that's where they're at, door to door, and having these conversations with them so that they can bring the politics and to act. Sounds like Bill might be breaking up a little bit. Anybody else getting that? Yeah, I think so. Um, but everything that Bill is saying is correct. Um, often the times working class people, um, the the best place to reach them, we, we know, um, is obviously through their workplaces. But as the left builds um, and we want to start, start conversations with uh, people who are learning about socialism and are learning about um, our political program and the world that we hope to build, um, a really great way to reach them is by something that they already understand, which is elections. Um, and in DSA, we run what we call class struggle elections, meaning that we are organizing the working class. We are not just focused on uh you know, trying to uh, pass some small reforms or make life slightly better. We're really trying to organize for the socialist future um, that we that we hope um, will become possible and that we, we really believe in our hearts will become possible. Um, and I also think that within that, obviously, um, people's material conditions um, improve under the, the candidates that we are able to get into office. Um, that was something that was huge with thinking of the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example. You're talking to people about how their lives could be different if they had health care. You're able to connect with them over their material conditions and talk about what that improvement would be. But truly, our goal is to organize the working class by using um, those points of struggle. Awesome. Uh, that's a really great answer. Um, so, you know, just moving along somewhat quickly I was hoping that you could, uh, you know, one of you is from the Brooklyn Electoral Working Group, one is used from the Bronx Upper Manhattan Electoral Working Group. What are the Electoral Working Groups? And if somebody listening here wanted to get involved with our electoral work, what would be the best thing for them to do? Yeah, and um, this is Ansley again. I am from the Brooklyn Electoral Working Group and, and Bill is from Bronx Upper Manhattan. Um, our electoral working groups are how we organize um, for these elections. We need to organize both DSA members um, and uh, other working class people in order to talk to tens of thousands um, of voters about the candidates um, that we endorse. Um, if people want to get involved in that work, they can visit the NYC DSA website. So that's going to be socialist.nyc slash working dash groups. Um, and there it has the contact information um, for both of our working groups, as well as our comrades over in lower Manhattan, um, as well as up in uh, Queens. Great. Um, has Staten Island gotten up and running yet? Yeah. Staten Island. So, oh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, so um, we have a Staten Island branch, um, and they are uh, considering endorsing and starting an electoral group of their very own. So we're excited to see what happens with that. That's very exciting. Um, so if you're in Staten Island, you can just reach out to the general 
Staten Island uh, NYC DSA branch. Um, and if you want to do electoral work, you could maybe be part of creating that electoral working group. Um, so I was hoping, you know, this is kind of the $64,000 question. What are the basic steps a candidate would go through to receive the endorsement of the NYC at DSA? And why is our endorsement a little bit different from other kinds of endorsements people might get in elections? Totally. Well, let's start with the last part of that question first. Um, a traditional endorsement is a is a paper endorsement. Um, it, it's something where an organization's logo is um, oftentimes slapped onto um, a palm card, something you give to voters. Maybe it's a tweet that's shared um, largely about communications. And maybe people from that organization volunteer. Um, maybe they put in some effort into these campaigns in a really uh, individualist sort of way. Um, maybe they don't. Um, and what they get in the end, whether the candidate wins or not, and what they get when the candidate um, goes into um, is really, you know, really goes with the winds. Um, and we don't know exactly uh, what power those organizations will receive because they um, weren't as organized and they, they didn't put as much into their endorsement process. Not knocking on any, any other types of endorsement um, processes, but it's important to understand how power works within elections and how power, power works uh, within NYC DSA. NYC's DSA's endorsement um, and DSA more generally, our endorsement is so much different because we put our members, our organized members behind candidates. We don't just have volunteers. Um, instead, we are um, organized. We are militant. We have a lot of um, knowledge and expertise um, that we bring in through our own struggles. Um, but at the same time, we are so committed to these fights um, and we uh, are, are really putting, um, putting in the mechanisms for accountability by working with candidates really closely um, and working toward our socialist, uh, socialist future. As far as the steps that candidates need to go through, um, that's pretty easy uh, to answer, though it's not an easy process. Um, candidates first meet with the electoral working groups uh, in, a, in a core team capacity, and then um, eventually some uh, candidates go on to speak with members. Members evaluate the uh, candidate's uh, ability to create the change that we'd like to see and push our program forward, um, and the viability of the districts in which they're running in. Um, we evaluate our own capacity um, and then we vote. We have a series of democratic votes that goes throughout the entire, uh, the entire organization, starting with the electoral working groups, moving on through our, uh, neighborhood branches, and then moving on to the highest level of the organization, the citywide leadership committee, the highest democratic level of the organization. Um, but what's really important there that I would encourage members um, to understand and feel, feel free to hop in here at any point too, um, is that our endorsement matters because people have a stake in these elections. Our endorsement matters because our members uh, really debate and think through strategically what we're trying to achieve. Um, and then we really are really fucking good at, uh, I'm sorry if I wasn't supposed to say that word, um, we are really very good at uh, at running campaigns, at winning, and uh, at trying to 
push push our program forward. Awesome. Really great. Yeah. Um, were you going to say something? Yeah, I, I was. I just wanted to say I completely agree with everything that Hansley said um, and that, you know, the reason why we do the endorsement process this way is because even though we are a volunteer organization, we don't want our members to be volunteers. We want them to be socialist organizers with a stake in our decision-making process. And really, that's part of our longer-term goal of building independent power that won't just disappear after one election. Because with so many endorsements from various organizations, you'll see them basically telling their members to go work on the campaigns. And while that can be very beneficial for a campaign, um, no matter how good the campaign is, all of that infrastructure disappears at the end of the election. That's what we saw with the Bernie 2016 campaign, where he built out this enormous campaign apparatus, but it all disappeared. Whereas in 2020, uh, DSA ran its own Bernie independent expenditure campaign in which DSA built its own operation to support Bernie. And then in tandem, supported its own state legislature candidates in um, Queens and Brooklyn, as well as a congressional candidate in the Bronx. And with this independent infrastructure, we were able to mobilize people who otherwise would have been discouraged when Bernie withdrew from the race. And we were able to sweep our state legislature elections and keep that infrastructure intact for our next electoral policy and the labor fight going forward. So, um, you know, it sounds like some of the other questions I had lined up, you all sort of answered in the course of your first um, answer. Uh, just very quickly before we go to live callers, what brought each of you into electoral work and what's your favorite thing about it? That's a very good question. So I actually say the day after AOC won her 2018 primary, um, particularly because of climate issues, I saw that DSA was doing nothing, something unlike any other progressive organization, which was like build this mass organization rooted in the working class. And that led me to come to the conclusion that, you know, electoral politics can have a radicalizing effect on working class people. And we can use it to continue kind of building towards this socialist, more equitable version of the world that gives power to the working class. Awesome. Yeah, and, and I joined uh, the electoral working group, uh, I guess similarly to how I joined DSA. Um, somebody canvassed me in my local park in Bushwick to talk to me about an upcoming election. They were a DSA volunteer, talked to me about State Senator Juliet Salazar. He represents uh, Senate District 18 up here in North Brooklyn. Um, and I then started volunteering for Salazar 
um, was brought into DSA. Um, and some of the best people that I knew, some of the best organizers I knew were doing electoral work. Um, and I have continued to uh, organize there, both because I personally love to organize alongside my comrades in a really uh, deep and effective way. I love talking to working class people and meeting them where they're at, literally right at their doorsteps. Um, and then also, I uh, think that electoral work is one of the most important ways that we can be um, building building DSA right now, in addition to um, our really focusing on our labor organizing work. I think that in tandem, um, electoral and labor organizing, as Bill, uh, Bill pointed out in his reasoning to our really ways in which we can reach working class people um, and push our programs forward to, to build this mass movement, right? We want to bring new people into this work. Um, and I've been able to see how many how many new people are uh, coming into electoral over the past couple of years that I've been here. Um, and it's really exciting. Oh, yeah. So um, speaking of that excitement, um, I'd love if we have around 10 minutes left. I'd love to be able to open up the phone lines to see if anybody has questions either for myself or for Ansley or for Bill um, or comments on the on the show you just heard. Um, just to remind folks, we spoke about uh, some mutual aid in southwest Louisiana, although our our guest from that segment is not here. So don't try to ask him any questions. And we spoke about the electoral process for NYC DSA and uh, what that looks like um, with Ansley and Bill. The, so the number, number to call for that call is uh, 718, wait. 212. 212-209-2877 uh, is the number to call for people who want who have questions uh, for this program. That's 212-209-2877. Yes, indeed. Um, and in the meantime, maybe we can just start with, uh, you guys already referenced to some extent this topic, but one of the things that I think many people uh, make people un unsure about electoral work is they're afraid that uh, once uh, socialists are elected into office, that they may uh, move back on their principles or no longer be as accountable to the working class as they may have been in the beginning. Um, what are your thoughts on that and how we can guard against that for NYC DSA and our electeds? Totally. That is that's a really fair question. Um, but I think that um, in thinking about accountability for our electeds, we need to really pull it back to what we're trying to achieve and the kinds of people that we're electing. Um, people don't trust their electeds because they have seen the ways in which they have failed us. Quote, unquote, progressive, even looking at our mayor, right, who was thought to be the mm. progressive pick. Um, a couple of years ago uh, are really nasty. They go back on their word. They are not held accountable to the people. Um, we are electing working class uh, socialists into office. So first of all, that is a different uh, type of person uh, to be representing the people. There are people that are of and by the people um, that come from the working class. People like Farah Dufrant Forest, for example, who's a union nurse. Um, 
But at the same time, we need to understand that we have a mass political organization um, behind these candidates, holding them accountable, working alongside them as our comrades, um, and also, quite frankly, having the ability and the mechanism to uh, to win an election against them in the future if um, if they become compromised. Um, in some way. But we are dedicated to seeing our candidates succeed, not just in terms of um, getting into office, but uh, succeeding when they arrive up in Albany or, uh, you know, at City Hall. Uh, we were able to hold them accountable in that way because we're we're continuing to work alongside them and to organize with them. I do want to pass it over to Bill, though, I, who I think may have uh, a couple of follow up points. Michael? Do we have him? Anybody? Uh, no, not yet. I mean, it, it's still your conversation. All right. Sounds good. But uh, yep. is Bill available somewhere in the ether? I, I think that his uh, service may have cut out. So I will leave it with that for okay. a moment um, as we take other callers. Totally. Um, well, I mean, for now, it's just you and me, Ansley. So... Uh, I'm excited. I don't know. Uh, so, you know, I, I was wondering, you know, you're deep in this process with the city council. I'm sure there's many candidates who are kind of asking you questions, sort of requiring your time. Um, if you, this is a volunteer operation for you, you're not, uh, compensated in any way for the work you're doing. How are you feeling emotionally at this point in the process? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I am really excited for the process to be over um, and to meet the to meet the candidates uh, in their endorsed capacity. I, I've spent time with people over the past uh, several months getting to know the candidates, uh, understanding uh, who they are and where they're coming from. Um, but I'm also I'm feeling really uh, full of uh you know, enthusiasm and hope um, uh, here in Brooklyn, we are going to be doing our first vote of the endorsement process um, coming up on this Thursday. Uh, it, it, the process is very long, so it'll go through a couple more votes. But I'm really excited to see uh, who members are supporting, to hear how passionate members are um, about some of our class struggle candidates. Um, I... Uh, I'm also excited to be able to get to work um, after after this process. The democratic process is a is a very long one, um, and then after that, it's a lot of ruling work and decision making, and and a lot of talking to voters. And I'm I'm really excited for that. Yeah, that's uh, at least for me. That's one of the most fun parts of electoral work is just talking to someone, seeing what they think, kind of interfacing, seeing whether they have any previous understanding of socialism and um, kind of bringing that home to their context. Um, so, yeah, I'm wondering, is um, in terms of sort of city council specifically, what kinds of things can 
could a socialist caucus, perhaps similar to what exists in Chicago already, uh, bring for NYC DSA and for New York City? Yeah. Now? Oh, I hear you. Bill, he's back. Um, Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think there's like a lot of interest in the topic of what power does the city county use the process. Um, and when you think about like the restrictions first, like this is a body that does not have the ability to raise taxes, as that is delegated to the state legislature. Uh, that being said, it has a pretty reasonable amount of power. Like, it has over zoning issues that we saw recently um, in the industry city fight. Um, that is a power that we can effectively use. But completely through, but it sounded like you were speaking about sort of the potential for the staffs of our elected officials to really make a big difference in communities and the, the really important land use power that the council has. So we only have one minute left. Uh, I just want to say thank Actually, you so Michael, much. Actually, Michael, we have to wrap up now. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah.